Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our guest today, Monique Dusan, who is the founder and director of the Center for Biblical Unity. Uh, it's a it's an organization committed to uh, bringing unity within the body of Christ and the culture in general over issues of race and racism. Uh, and Monique has a special interest in one particular component of the discussion of race that we don't hear a lot about, and it's more has to do with the un, some of the underlying philosophy that uh, that undergirds a lot of the discussion about race today, known as critical race theory. Uh, so we'll we'll get into more of that. If you're not familiar with that, Monique will tell us exactly what's involved with that particular philosophy and and how it manifests itself in a lot of the discussions about race in the broader culture today. So Monique, welcome. Really glad to have you with us uh, and looking forward to uh, hearing your story and some of your insights on critical race theory. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So tell us tell us just a little bit about your background uh, and sort of where you grew up and how you came to be interested in the subject of critical race theory. Well, I grew up in South Los Angeles and grew up to a sing- with a single parent and four siblings. Um, I became interested in uh, critical race theory almost um, accidentally. Like it was like I was born into this rhetoric. Um, there would be things like, or um, terms said like, well, you know, white people just think they can do black people any kind of way. Or the idea that, the area that I lived in, because it was hood, it was like that because of white people. And I didn't question this as a child. It was just, you know, the rhetoric that was there and the way that the way that I thought about the world um, only had like one white teacher. And so everything was kind of confirmed through, you know, my teachers, through my mom and just my friends, parents, general conversations that were had, things that I overheard. And so I think the this, this framework of what we call critical race theory or this look at who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors within a society was almost just embedded in the daily dialogue that I was a part of. And so, yeah, that's how I became interested in it. Um, I think in university, I, I learned a little bit more of the terms and the statistics and things like that that kind of confirm what I had learned or heard growing up. Let's talk about what we mean by certain terms that you use. So let's define words like racism, systemic racism, but start with critical race uh, theory. What is that? Let, let me suggest, too, we're gonna, we want you to help define a number of, of these really important terms. And uh, if we could get maybe like a Twitter response mm. <laughs> to, to, the de- to the definition, because we got a lot of other things we want to get to, too. All right. Well, um, a Twitter response, that's feel like the pressure's on. Um, <laughs> so critical race theory, the the short of it all is that it's just a look into society um, at who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors based on race. And so how is one group of people being oppressed and how is another group of people oppressing all from a lens of race? It's a critical look at society based on or based through the lens of race. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Uh, awesome. How about define racism for us the way you understand it? Well, I think the way that I understand it is twofold. So I used to understand racism as, you know, someone who wore the, the you know, like a white cloak and was a part of the KKK or someone who would, you know, call me a derogatory term based on my skin color and things like that. Currently, racism is being defined as prejudice plus power. So mm-hmm. you have a racial prejudice, but you also have um, a place of power within society. And so when we look at who holds the power within society, it would be the white male um, or whites in general have higher power than people of color. So that's by definition, a black person could not be racist within our culture. From a critical race theory perspective. Gotcha. How about systemic racism? Systemic racism looks at how are the structures and systems within America. So let's take the banking system. How are those things racist against people of color? What, how are they continuing to promote a white supremacy or a white power and keep people of color from participating in those structures or participating um, at lower rates and creating disparities between whites and, and people of color? By the way, you're doing great. These could definitely fit into tweets. Um, Thanks. How about, I'm not really a Twitter person. I'm just trying it out, but I think I'm, you know, getting a little handle on it. I love it. How about white privilege? White privilege is just the the systems that continue to promote white power. It is things that you you may not even be um, aware that you participate in if you're white. So an example that I would use is, let's say, um, we're walking out of Target. Now, Target's a store, in case you're listening abor- abroad. Target's a store here in the States, um, like a department store or, you know, a major store. And we walk out and the alarm goes off, signaling that, you know, you walk out at the same time as me, signaling that one of us has merchandise that is either potentially stolen or a tag has been left on that should have been removed. I get pulled over or, um, you know, the security guard comes to me automatically and says, well, you must have, you know, the, the, the stolen goods or the tag that's left on, and they just let you go. Mm. People would say that the white privilege is that you were never considered to be a target for the stolen merchandise. That would be a privilege based on, for some, based on the color of our skin. They would say, well, they just let Sean go, but they pulled Monique over, and you know they pulled her over because she's black. Sean probably never even thought that he was going to, you know, potentially be pulled over. Part of this, though, part of my, my issue with the, the concept of white privilege isn't that it, it completely doesn't exist, that there aren't systems in America that have historically privileged white people, things like redlining. But when we look at white privilege today, there are a lot of assumptions. So let's say two people, one white, one black, is walking out of a store. Let's flip it. Let's say that this time it's um, the white person who gets immediately pulled over. Perhaps the security guard has been looking on the camera and knows I need to go for this person because I've watched them steal. It might not have anything to do with race, but because we've adopted a construct that says you know, white people don't experience this, only people of color do. We adopt many other views into that. And one of those things is um, motive of heart. It puts us in a position to assume the motive of someone's heart or, or the motive of their deed. 
All right, so Monique, let's let's look at uh, this notion of critical race theory in a little bit more detail, and you can get out of Twitter mode for the moment uh, <laughs> if, for, for more full explanations. Uh, but l- let's g- give our listeners some examples of where you saw critical race theory coming out in some some of the discussions about uh, race and the the tragic death of George Floyd. Uh, in the summer of 2020? Um, I think that one of the immediate, immediate things that I saw with, um, with George Floyd, and I, I am not here to, you know, talk about was it murder or anything like that. Um, you know, I think that, that some of those things are just clear based on video. But what I saw coming out in, in conversations is this idea that it was automatically based on race before there was any conversation on, you know, was it completely based on race? There is a, a thought um, within critical race theory of, of narrative and believing the narrative of the person of color, even without asking questions, that my experience, because I'm a person of color, should be seen as truth automatic truth. We don't ask questions. We don't need to have witnesses, as scripture says. We don't need to, you know, have testimony or things like that. Because I'm a person of color, we should, you know, just believe my truth. And so one of the ways that I saw um, critical race theory coming out in some of these conversations around George Floyd is this automatic assumption that it is a racial event um, without witness and without evidence. I would say another one is just this idea of oppressed and oppressor and that this entire incident was based on um, a, a hegemonic like discourse, a he- um, more of a power play. And so, you know, as, as, as George Floyd is being murdered, um, it must be because he's black. It must be because there's power dynamics at play and George Floyd did not have power being a black man. Okay, that, that's helpful. Um, so l- let me let me circle back and ask the ask the question this way: What would you say are the the central tenets, maybe the the two or three or four most most central components of critical race theory? And, and it's, this is this would be for our listeners who are not familiar with it at all. Um, I would say that the central tenets are that, um, you know, there's a system of whiteness um, or a system of oppression that's that's currently at play and constantly at play within our society. And that that system is whites oppressing people of color. So it it looks at, you know, who are the, the oppressed, who are the oppressors, as I've mentioned before. Um, another central tenet is that we we won't necessarily end our oppression until um, until it benefits the the white person. So in the book Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Delgado and I'm completely forgetting um, the last name of the other author, but they look at what's called interest convergence and how racism won't truly end until there's a benefit to white people um, because white people are automatically benefiting from oppression of people of color. 
So even if, let's say I have a, a white boss and he gives me a promotion, that promotion may in part be because, you know, I'm a diligent worker. I show up on time. I'm efficient, you know, all of those things. But in the end, the true motive is because that white employer sees benefit to himself or herself. Um, trying to think of another central tenet of, of critical race theory. I think um, that one of the, the other central tenets is looking back at history. And again, looking at who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors and how do we bring a fuller narrative to, to our current discourse of history, our current narrative that we put forth. So they're looking to augment history, which I can, you know, I can get on board with. I think when we look back throughout scripture, we see a very full picture of Israel. You know, we don't just see her, her struggles. We don't just see her glory, her glory moments. We see a full narrative of her struggles and the highs and the lows. And so I think those are probably the three that I'd pull out immediately. Yeah, that's really helpful. You, you've talked a lot about oppressor and the oppressed. And when we look in the scriptures, we see that Jesus has deep concern for those who are oppressed, oppressed with disease, uh, those who are oppressed financially, the poor. Uh, is there a scriptural way of looking at the value and ministry and love for the marginalized that might differ about how critical race theory says and approaches the marginalized? Because I often hear people who support critical race theory say, well, Jesus is all about the marginalized. And I think, yes, but I suspect you might be framing that a little bit differently than Jesus would have in his culture at that time. So is there a difference there? I think there is. And I think that it comes down to a definition of terms. So everyone knows the scripture that we should do justice. I completely agree with that. But how do you define justice? I completely mm-hmm. agree that, um, you know, the Lord doesn't um, want want anyone to, quote unquote, be left behind or to be left out. But when we look at things like inclusivity, how are we now um, having conversations about inclusivity? One of the things with critical race theory is that it's like a train. And so as we adopt this framework and the terms that are used within the framework, like inclusivity or, um, you know, this quote of having all voices at the table, what they what people don't usually understand is that connected to this train is things like LGBTQ, feminist theory, ableist theory, child studies. And so when we are when we are talking about like do justice, how are we defining that term and what are you considering just? What are you considering as we as we talk about oppression and marginalized people? How are you defining oppressed and marginalized people? Is it someone that would consider themselves a sexual minority or a gender um, like gender minority because they don't ascribe to heterosexuality? These are the things that we need to to really look at before we jump on board with, well, the scriptures say this, you know, the scriptures say do justice. So I have to do justice because what we what we could accidentally do and from a well-meaning stand is open a door that we now need to be completely inclusive because this is the wording and the phraseology I've used. I want to make sure that I'm inclusive. Well, how do we steer clear of being so inclusive that I don't now have an imam trying to preach from my pulpit Hmm. or having someone who ascribes to LGBTQ saying, I also need to sit at your leadership table because you're inclusive. 
Does that make so, sense? Yeah, it does. That's really helpful. Okay. Uh, so, Monique, maybe for, for again for our listeners who might not be familiar with this critical race theory idea, uh, where did it come from? Uh, how did how did this get started? Well, I will try and, and definitely do a Twitter answer on this one. Um, critical race theory came out of critical legal studies, which what which arrived at the end of the the seventies or in or in into the early eighties, and really looked at you know what happened in the civil rights movement. Laws were overturned and things like that. But now, when we look at when we look legally at things, it doesn't necessarily look like. The, the laws that we, you know, overturned, statistically, it doesn't look like these things are being put forward. Now, that in and of itself seems like it would be fine. But what people don't realize is that critical legal studies came out of critical theory. Um, critical theory came out of the Frankfurt School. And the Frankfurt School in the middle and late 30s came out of Marxism. So when Marxism failed, the Marxist thinkers, six or eight of them, um, came out and formed the, the Frankfurt School. And the Frankfurt School was, again, looking at society from a critical, a critical lens. Like, critically, what, what are we, you know, who are the, the oppressed and who are the oppressors? Um, they moved from, from Europe in, I want to say, like, 37, 38, maybe, into the States. They landed in New York. After, I think, being in Los Angeles, landed in New York, and just continued this, this study of critical theory. And then you see, you see from what I am remembering right now, it's not that it lied dormant, but you didn't hear a lot about it until we get to critical legal studies um, with people like Derek Bell. And from critical legal studies, you move into the mid to late eighties and you get people like Kimberly Crenshaw, who's looking at critical race theory and how are people now being oppressed solely based on race? But, you know, from there, you get things like I said before, um, feminist theory or LGBTQ. The, the goal um, or the umbrella really is critical um, social theory because critical race theory is a social theory. Um, feminist theory and feminist studies is a social theory. So it sits under this umbrella of critical social theory, which is under the larger umbrella of critical theory. So it's, it sounds like what, what all of these have in common, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it sounds like the common element is they, they tend to view the world exclusively through the lenses of the oppressor and the oppressed. And yes. you're, you're either in one group or the other, and you have different, you know, different opportunities and obligations based on whichever group you're in. Would, would that be fair? Yes. Okay. So tell, maybe before we get to an assessment of this, t tell me, what, what do you think that critical race theory gets right? What, what, is, what can we glean from it that's helpful and that's consistent with Scripture? Well, I think that, one, many well-meaning Christians get wrapped up in critical race theory because it does seek to affirm the dignity, value, and worth of humans. You know, so we are created in God's image and we have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. What I think people um, really seek to do with, with critical race theory is to, to look at 
well, if we're going to affirm the dignity, value and worth of individuals, how do we um, how do we look at some of the plight of certain individuals and right those wrongs? How do we speak justice into unjust situations? How do I, you know, speak up on behalf of the marginalized or the oppressed or the poor or the poor? Um, so I think that that's, you know, definitely one of the things that that it that agrees with the historic Christian framework. Again, when I, when we look at history, wanting to give a fuller narrative, I completely believe that um, America has a horrific, you know, history with racism in the states. And that isn't always talked about or threaded out fully. When we look biblically, we see Israel's history, the ups and the downs. And so I think that the augmentation of history and wanting to offset some of the narrative is a good thing. I just caution that we don't swing the pendulum so far that we now erase the good things that America has done and is doing. So you have concern for our nation as a whole, but also that critical race theory might be making inroads into the church. Yes. Uh, how is it doing that? And how is that maybe similar and or different from how it makes inroads into the wider culture? Well, I think um, inroads into the church, what I see is what I call this new canon, things like white fragility or how to be an anti-racist by Ibrahim Kendi, um, looking at different books that really separate us more than unite us. Um, I believe that as, as Christians, we are brothers and sisters. The, the separation within Christianity is, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? And if we are in Christ, then we should be moving forward as brothers and sisters, not this idea of you're white. So you need to repent for, you know, the sins of your ancestors. You need to lament. You need to divest yourself of whiteness. Those aren't um, those aren't things that I find in scripture in order for us to be united. And so when I when I look at how critical race theory is making an entrance into the church is because we are hearing and seeing these things, a shaming of white people instead of a conversation of, well, what does the Bible say about us moving forward as a unified group? What does the Bible say about you being my brother or you being my sister? That is um, without regard to skin color. Now, in the larger culture, I see this as um, this shaming of, of white people, but I see that happening in the church as well. This thing of, you know, white silence is violence. In the in the in the broader culture, there's this canceling of of individuals if they aren't doing the work of anti-racism correctly. And this anti-racism work is strenuous. It is a a works plus, you know, or a Jesus plus type of situation. If you're a Christian, you know, I don't see Jesus saying, you know, you need to read, you know, the 66 books and then also add on to all of these other things. And if you don't add on to all these other things, then you might be canceled. So when, when I think about, you know, how does, how is it making inroads into the church? I think it's making inroads because there's all this other work that needs to be done in order for us to be unified. That isn't Mm -hmm. scriptural. And when I see it in culture, I definitely see a shaming of a people group um, and a shaming of, you know, anyone who goes against the tribal rhetoric. So, Monique, you just a couple minutes ago, you used the term white fragility. 
Can you spell out what you mean by that? So White Fragility, it's a book by Robin DiAngelo. And um, what, if I surmise like the whole book, I feel like what, what she's saying is that the emotions that come up to me, human emotions, she wants to ascribe to whites. So I'm a black woman. Um, and if someone were to come to me and say, well, you know, I personally think you're racist and you should be doing more work to end racism. And because you're not doing all of this work to end racism, you're really just racist. And, you know, I should cancel you in culture. I will probably let you know exactly what I think. I am saved. And yes, you know, I'm still a work in progress. But that room isn't given to white people. If if white if there's a conversation around race and let's say someone becomes upset or someone cries or um, has questions, it's based on them being fragile instead of them being human. And a lot of these emotions that D'Angelo puts forward or a lot of the conversations and questions that come out of certain conversations around race, in my personal opinion, are based more on human nature um, and could potentially even be based on things um, like cognitive dissonance, dissonance. Like this is a new term for me or this is a new way of thinking. How can I possibly have further conversation and, and learn things maybe about America's history without being called fragile or unable to actually have conversations about race? Again, this is a very shaming way to look at our brothers and sisters. One of the real powerful things I think you're bringing out here, Monique, is that underneath our discussions about race are powerful worldviews and just different uses of terms. I'd be really curious, what was it in your experience that got you to realize, oh my goodness, there's this entire worldview underneath how I'm even looking at this issue, and what advice would you have for us in conversations about race with other people who maybe just see the world very differently, Christians or not? Um, there were a couple of things for me regarding like, are, are you referring to like what pulled me out or what made me start to question my worldview? Yeah. What made you start to question critical race theory and what could we learn from that in our conversations with other people? I began to see the, the damage that was being done to white brothers and sisters. I had an intern who... Um, came to to my job and came to me crying because, you know, minority students or students of color were shaming all the white students, telling them that they shouldn't speak. Um, she was confused because, well, if I, if I don't speak, then white silence is violence. But if I do speak, then I'm only speaking from a place of privilege. Um, and, and I had conversations with another friend who was very dear and, she let me know about her experience and things like that. And I just began to get into a conversation with Holy Spirit about, you know, what is this? How, you know, why aren't people understanding that white fragility is real or that white privilege is real? This is a, you know, a worldview that I upheld for a very long time. And the Lord began to take me back through um, the early church. And, you know, is Christianity a white man's religion? How did the early church handle issues of partiality? Um, which is something that we would today call racism. Um, and I think the conversations with these two women and the work of the Holy Spirit in challenging some of my own views began to lead me out of 
this thought process and worldview of critical race theory. So, Monique, one final question for you, maybe two two parts to it. Um, how, how would you encourage us to have more constructive conversations about race without being divisive or without the, the kind of shaming that you're referring to? Um, I say breathe. <laughs> First, <laughs> pray and breathe. These are hard conversations, and yet it's going to take everyone coming to the table to, to you know, have these conversations. And when I say everyone coming to the table, um, within the church, I mean, like, it's going to take leaders coming to the table. It's going to take lay people coming to the table, Blacks, whites, and everything in between coming and saying, like, hey, let's let's have this dialogue. Racism does exist. Like we can acknowledge that. And I can also acknowledge the fact that I don't need a, a, a secular framework to tell me how to address racism. Mm. I can be patient. I can believe the best. I can ask questions. I can forgive. I can become inquisitive. Like there are I can be patient. You know, I can extend grace. I can choose to go again. There are things that we can do within the body that just set us up for a much um, more impactful discussion about race than critical theory does, where I am not coming to the conversation from a place of you are automatically my oppressor because you because of the color of the skin you wear, because you're white. I am not that holy. And I've said I continue to say this, like if we have to come to the table and say, hey, we need to talk about race, but we are talking about it from the automatic assumption that because you're white, you're my oppressor. I can't have that conversation. I'm just not that whole. Hmm. That's that's really helpful, Monique. Uh, I mean, particularly how, showing how the, the worldview that underlies it uh, cuts off those kinds of constructive conversations. So one, one last question. What, what gives you hope? about the discussion of race in our culture today? I think what gives me hope is the, like, gosh, there's a lot. I I look at the word and I know that um, in John 17, we already have what we need to be united. We have what we need for oneness. When Jesus prays, he said, I've given them what they need. Like he's given us the glory. We we have what we need. Um, And then, I look at where unity is being built. I receive emails every day from, you know, people who are saying, I had this conversation. I noticed my church was was going down a critical race theory path. And I had this conversation with my pastor and now they're going to change the curriculum they were looking at. People who are asking questions. Um, I, I, I just, yeah, I believe that through prayer, through the scripture and, and what Jesus has has already done, for us, that we do have a great hope. We do have a hope that is better than um, than what the world offers. When when I look at scripture and I understand that I am on an equal playing ground with the white person, just because I'm black, it doesn't mean that that the Lord sees me as any less than. It doesn't mean that I am op- oppressed as as the world says. I have a different come from in entering conversations of of unity. And so I think that that gives me hope that I don't have to look at this paradigm. I don't have to look at conversations of racial unity from a place of always being the oppressed. That's re- that's really helpful. I appreciate you putting putting specifics to it and how to how to have these conversations in a much more 
constructive way. Uh, Monique, thank you so much for being with us. I want to commend our listeners to your to your organization, to your website, the Center for Biblical Unity, uh, or or just to to uh, Google search for for your name. You've got lots of video out there that's available for people to see. Uh, so we're very grateful for the good work that you're doing. We welcome you into the Talbot community this uh, in the fall of 2020. Thanks so uh, much. Look, look forward to having you as a, as a part of our community. So thanks so much for being with us, and we really appreciate your insights in this really important conversation. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Monique Dusan and the Center for Biblical Unity, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and feel free to share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Everything.